Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions about the sexual abuse of minors, murder, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Lisa Oliver was exhausted. She'd sat through yet another one of her savior, Julius Christ's marathon Bible meetings. He often went on and on about the impending apocalypse. As she walked out of the building, Lisa thought about the hours of homework she still had to finish when she got home. As she left the meeting, Julius cornered Lisa. With nowhere to turn, Lisa looked directly at Julius as he leaned in close to speak with her. She felt his breath and could smell his cologne as he grabbed her hand. Now in his late 50s, Julius's long hair and beard were more gray than black. He wasn't much taller than Lisa, and his belly took up the space between them. Julius scanned her body with his eyes. He said, You are becoming a beautiful young woman of God. Lisa blushed, but she didn't feel flattered by his praise. Her stomach turned as he took her hand, playing his fingers across her palm. Julius leaned in closer, his hot breath on her neck. He whispered in her ear, Have you felt the spirit of God yet? Lisa shivered, which he must have taken as a no. He went on, You want to feel it where it counts? When she told her mom what happened, her mom seemed awed. Having sex with Julius was said to be a transcendent and divine experience, but Lisa felt revolted by the idea. Still, if Julius asked again, she knew what she had to do. There would be serious consequences for putting off her God twice. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we followed Julius Shacknow's rise to a spiritual leader of hundreds of people in small-town Connecticut. Over the 1960s and 70s, Julius went from being God's prophet to the sinful Messiah, then finally, God himself. This week, we'll take a look at the toll Julius's lust for power took on his followers and how his group, The Work, fell from grace. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Spirituality is often touted as the solution to humanity's basest attributes, like greed and selfishness. That's why so many view it as a vehicle for self-improvement. Being open to different ideas can help you become a better person, but it can sometimes leave you vulnerable, because there are some who use spirituality as a smokescreen while they indulge their own darkness. People like Julius Shacknow. Julius took advantage of the political and social upheaval of the 1960s and 70s, warning that the turmoil was a signal of the end times. He amassed a following of devoted believers in suburban Connecticut, calling his group The Work. Promising protection during the impending apocalypse, Julius's followers did whatever he asked. Eventually, he convinced them that he was God. However, by 1976, Julius stopped courting publicity. 
he quit making appearances after the public didn't respond to his divinity claim. In addition to being ridiculed, concerned parents of young members raised alarms in the press. Because he couldn't manipulate the public or the media, Julius turned his attention to his followers, over whom he had complete control. And the more negative press the work faced, the more his followers felt his wrath. Julius's temper was nothing new to members of the work. They were often the outlet for Julius's righteous fury. Anyone could be targeted at any moment for any reason, or more often than not, for no reason at all. One night in the early 1980s, Julius called families to the stage. Mothers, fathers, and children lined up shoulder to shoulder, glancing nervously at each other. When Julius turned back to face them, a leather belt hung menacingly from his fist. He ordered them all to strip from the waist down, on a stage in front of the entire group. They did as he commanded, likely hoping their obedience might bring mercy. But on that night, Julius showed no grace. One by one, Julius went down the line, savagely beating each one. Blow after blow with the belt rained down on their exposed and vulnerable backsides. With each strike, Julius bellowed commandments. God was disappointed in the lack of discipline among the group. He ordered the men to discipline the women and the women the children. The people on stage were facing punishment for the supposed sins of the group. The audience stood in shocked silence and horror. Most of them had never seen Julius be physically violent before. They were all terrified and humiliated by what Julius forced them to witness. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Researcher Phil Leesk's work focuses on social humiliation in societies. He defines humiliation as a demonstrative exercise of power against one or more persons. There are a number of ways that victims historically have responded to humiliation. Anger and a desire for revenge are common. However, in cases where the victim also realizes their powerlessness against the humiliator, this anger often sets up cycles of violence against themselves and their peers. Another typical response is feeling guilt or shame. Dr. Leesk writes, Resorting to a sense of shame is also a way of seeking to control what is uncontrollable by admitting or claiming one's part in it. The victim blames himself for doing wrong, not the person who has wronged him. Ultimately, the powerlessness felt by victims of humiliation can lead to paranoia and depression. Though one might think experiences like this would have cost Julius followers, it actually served to tighten his grip. Many had been with him for years, if not decades. After dedicating that much time, it was easier for them to accept they were bad believers rather than believers in a bad God. As far as gods went, Julius was as bad as they got. Julius still performed what he called his special work with the female members of the group. An invitation to Julius's bed was supposedly a blessing, one they were never expected to refuse. Age didn't matter to Julius, or if it did, he preferred young girls. Even senior members began to take notice. 
They wondered if they were right to be following a god who could take such advantages. But Julius was just one part of the rotten trinity leading the work. Julius dubbed Joanne Sweetman the embodiment of the Holy Spirit. Members were taught to revere her much the same way they did Julius. Former business developer Paul Sweetman was Julius's chief apostle and second in command. While Joanne and Paul helped procure women and girls for Julius's special work, they mainly focused on the financial side of the operation. Together, they had built a multi-million dollar real estate empire on the backs of loyal congregants. They'd faced legal repercussions in 1983 for their abusive labor practices. But since then, business has continued as usual. Then, in 1985, a former apostle named Stephen Rand filed a $1.5 million lawsuit against the work. For years, Rand had served as vice president and manager of the work's real estate business, J. Ann North. Over those years, he earned between $200 and $270 a week, depending on what Joanne felt like paying. He told the local Meriden Record Journal, they would look at your budget and knock off a percentage and let you live on that, always figuring you were asking for too much money. To highlight the work's payment practices, the same article mentioned a previous suit. This one featured another former apostle, Frank Poffel, who spoke about how Joanne and Paul's financial schemes got him in trouble with the IRS. According to Poffel, in 1978, Paul and Joanne reported to the IRS that they had paid him $36,000, that stuck Poffel with a large tax bill, despite allegedly never seeing any of that money. He told the Record Journal, I wouldn't call it mismanagement of funds. They were managed very well for their own purposes. Rand and Poffel eventually settled their lawsuits out of court. While we don't know much about how much Poffel got, Rand only received $25,000. In addition to calling out the Sweetman's business practices, Rand, Poffel, and other former members also went on record about Julius's sexual predation. Rand said Julius's special work ultimately caused him to leave. According to Rand, Julius said he was never going to stop until he dies from a bullet in the brain. Poffel commented on Julius's apparent fetish for young girls, telling reporters, if my daughters were older and I was still in, I know exactly what would happen, against my will and without my permission. Stephen Rand lived that exact nightmare. His ex-wife had chosen to stay in the group with their 11-year-old daughter. Before leaving, Rand attempted to broach the subject of Julius's sexual abuse with the Sweetmans. According to Rand, the Sweetman said they let Julius prey on the group because they were more concerned that otherwise he would get bored and get involved with the companies. Though these massive bombshells were only just falling on the public, it wasn't news to insiders. The Trinity's activities had lost the work a steady stream of followers. Reports varied, but in the mid-80s, the group had shrunk from several hundred to anywhere between 250 and 120 members. These losses weren't limited to just those less devoted to the cause. Apostles and other members of Julius's inner circle also fled. Though Paul and Joanne seemed to maintain a luxury lifestyle of large houses and fancy new cars, the loss of followers affected the group's businesses. Given the dwindling followers and revenue, it's no surprise Julius turned up the intimidation tactics to control those who remained. 
In addition to verbal and physical abuse, Julius continued making outlandish claims of power. He predicted disaster, injury, and even death for anyone who dared defy him. Julius's theology had always been a rather strange mix of Christian, New Age, and sci-fi, but the media pressure seemed to fan the flames of fire and brimstone. His claims reached new levels of derangement when the Challenger space shuttle exploded on national TV in 1986. Julius told his followers he'd caused the disaster. His reason? To prevent Earth people from meddling with his followers on Jupiter. Though his head was in space, that same year a civil suit brought Julius back down to Earth. A woman in her 30s alleged she had been forced to have sex with Julius when she was just 15 years old. This time, though, the suit came from someone with intimate knowledge of the work's inner circle. The woman's name was Beverly Sweetman, Paul Sweetman's now-estranged daughter. Coming up, a public betrayal close to home dramatically changes the tide for Julius. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast, and I'm here to tell you about my new 10-episode limited series, Obituaries. They're some of the most iconic figures of all time, celebrated in death for their individual achievements and impact on society. But in life, the relationships they kept tell a different story, one of unexpected connections that yielded extraordinary change. Every Wednesday on Obituaries, join my co-host Carter and me as we explore the shared legacies of prolific pairs from the past. From the mutual traumas of entertainers Marilyn Monroe and Ella Fitzgerald, to the unlikely admiration between visionaries Mark Twain and Nikola Tesla, each episode of Obituaries digs deep into the lasting impressions made between two legendary figures and how their entanglements changed the course of history. These meaningful duos may have passed on, but the profound effect they had on each other and us will live on forever. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. The 1980s were a disastrous decade for Julius Shacknow. Public allegations of his sexual predation were costing him followers. In 1986, the daughter of his second-in-command, Paul Sweetman, brought a civil suit against Julius. Beverly Sweetman alleged that she'd been forced to have sex with Julius when she was just 15 years old. She filed her suit in New Jersey, where the Shacknow and Sweetman families lived at the time of the abuse. Unfortunately, she couldn't bring criminal charges against Julius due to the state's statute of limitations. In the end, the parties settled the claim quietly for an undisclosed amount of money. Part of the agreement included sealing the details of her complaint from the public. Despite this, Beverly's lawsuit seemed to inspire others. In 1987, the Hartford Current interviewed four women who all alleged Julius had raped them. They spoke anonymously because they still had friends and family in the group. They knew their loved ones would be punished severely for their choice to speak out. One woman told The Current that Paul Sweetman took her to a motel to meet Julius at only 13 years old. There, Julius raped her under the pretense of getting closer to God. Julius abused her 12-year-old sister shortly after. 
Another woman, who we'll refer to as Amy, said she was over 18 when Julius approached her. She told The Current that Julius used scripture to prove that his actions were part of God's will. After several encounters with Julius, Amy became pregnant. Six months into her pregnancy, Paul Sweetman told her to come on a drive with him. She wondered where he might be taking her, but she knew better than to question the chief apostle. They drove for hours before pulling into the parking lot of a New Jersey clinic. Initially, Amy felt confused. Julius forbade seeing doctors, but then Amy got a closer look at the sign. Paul had taken her to an abortion clinic. Amy knew she had no say in the matter. Dejectedly, she followed Paul through the doors. There, the doctor told Paul that she was too far along for a legal procedure. Unfortunately, it was only a short-lived reprieve. Three weeks later, Paul returned. He had found a doctor in New York City who agreed to perform the abortion. As Amy recounted her story to reporters, tears filled her eyes. When asked to comment on the allegations made against him by the various women, Julius became belligerent. He told them, I have no comment. You know why? Because you are ignorant of God and his ways. You're interested in smutty material that will satisfy the lustful eyes and ears of your readers. Despite Julius's refusal to comment, there was plenty of information available to readers, and more came in by the day. In August of 1988, Karen Shacknow Goodwin, Holy Spirit Joanne's daughter, filed a suit similar to Beverly Sweetman's. She named all three leaders as defendants, alleging they had groomed her from the age of 11 to accept Julius's sexual abuse, which she endured for years, beginning at a young age. Like Beverly, Karen privately settled out of court in May 1989. The terms weren't disclosed to the public, and all parties agreed not to comment. Once again, the terrible trinity had used their influence on one of their own children to dodge a reckoning. Three years later, another one of Julius's children was in the spotlight, but this time, he was one of the accused. 29-year-old Daniel Sweetman had grown up in the work. Leaders put him in charge of the youth choir, and he often babysat for families in the group. In 1992, police arrested Daniel and charged him with sexually abusing four children. The trial was brief, as all the children testified to the abuse. Ultimately, Daniel pled guilty. His psychologist, Rhoda Kreisman, diagnosed him with sex addiction. She called Daniel a naive and socially inept person looking for love in all the wrong places. A 2001 study in the British Journal of Psychiatry found having been a victim of childhood sexual abuse was a strong predictor of whether a person became a perpetrator. While Daniel never claimed abuse, his sister Karen alleged that Julius had forced her to watch him having sex with her mother, siblings, and others. Even though Daniel's psychologist recommended he be sent to a treatment program, the judge sentenced Daniel to one year in federal prison for sexual abuse of minors. As these revelations rocked the public, Julius raged against the media coverage. He told his followers not to believe the stories. He said that, just like Jesus, he too was being persecuted. Julius then doubled down on his apocalyptic message, by claiming that the attacks were a sign that the end times were closer than ever. 
Julius's sermons became ever more terrifying as his paranoia grew. He warned his remaining followers that people would be coming for them. He said that at any moment, armed soldiers could burst through the doors to kill them all. Most importantly, Julius preached, they needed to be prepared to lay down their lives to save him. With Armageddon so close, followers were especially fearful of crossing Julius. No one dared risk their salvation right when it mattered most. His demands and treatment grew harsher, yet they clung to Julius even tighter. By 1992, longtime members like Lisa Oliver were terrified by the thought of leaving. A few years earlier, leadership forced Lisa to drop out of high school during her senior year. Julius had taught that education was dangerous because the human mind was an enemy to God. Even still, she couldn't let go of her dream of going to college and asked for a meeting with Julius to beg for his permission. Lisa had barely finished the question before Julius slammed his hand on the large wood desk between them. Absolutely not, he declared. Lisa remained frozen in her seat. Julius towered over her as he berated her. He said he knew the only thing girls did in college was fornicate. Shaking and near tears, Lisa gave up on all of her dreams at that moment. She realized she had no control, no say over what would happen to her. As if to drive the point home, within a couple of years, Julius arranged her marriage to another devoted member of the group. Soon after her marriage, Lisa became pregnant. When Lisa's daughter was born, Julius chose her name. It should have been the final blow that decimated Lisa's sense of self. But motherhood was just what she needed to wake her up to the only thing left in her power, the choice to leave. Knowing all of the awful things that happened to the girls and women of the work, Lisa couldn't stomach the idea of raising her daughter there. And yet, Julius and his organization were all Lisa had ever known. Years of programming battled her motherly instincts. Fear and doubt plagued Lisa for the first couple years of her daughter's life. Finally, in 1992, she found the courage to take her daughter and get out. Even then, after nearly two decades under Julius's thumb, Lisa felt terrified she was making the wrong choice. Her mother and brother remained with Julius and cut off all contact with her. She dug deep within herself for the strength to continue for the sake of her daughter. After the years of accusations and civil suits, Lisa wasn't the only one leaving the group. The meeting hall seemed to get emptier by the day. As his following dried up, disaster loomed over Julius's horizon. Coming up, the multi-million dollar business empire Paul Sweetman built comes crashing down, signaling the end. Now back to the story. After decades of manipulation and abuse, 69-year-old Julius Shacknow was quickly losing members of the work. Even still, he continued proclaiming his own divinity, despite his devilish behavior. In 1993, Julius made his first TV appearance in over a decade on New England Cable News. Julius wore large glasses and a hearing aid, along with a maroon Mr. Rogers-esque cardigan. His hair cascaded around his shoulders, though there was far less of it on top of his head. His beard had more salt than pepper. Far from the dynamic young preacher he had been, Julius's health seemed in decline. 
Paul Sweetman, Julius's right-hand man, observed silently from behind the cameras. When asked why he had decided to give the interview, Julius replied, I feel now it's time for everybody to know who I am and why I'm on Earth. As he had in all past interviews, Julius happily pontificated on his own beliefs. He claimed humans had become irredeemably evil, and his presence accelerated the end times. Julius went back to some of his favorite lines. Sitting forward in his chair, he said, I'm here to close the world in fiery judgments. I'm here to punish man for sinning against me. Allowed to continue uninterrupted, Julius elaborated on the many groups and institutions he had come to punish and destroy. He said he was going to end the Christian church and would raise the dead so they'd testify against their wrongdoers. During Armageddon, he'd look down from heaven and wouldn't see a single good person left. During his speech, the camera closed in on his face. Never breaking eye contact with the interviewer, Julius's eyes were dark and dull. Though what he was saying was horrifying and grandiose, Julius seemed bored. But when the interviewer brought up Julius's special work and past allegations of sexual abuse, Julius finally perked up in anger. His voice got somehow lower, more menacing. Julius held up a finger to the interviewer's face like a principal scolding a misbehaving student. You didn't agree to that. We end the meeting right now. You wouldn't understand that. Julius was well-practiced at silencing would-be accusers. A 2017 study published in the Journal of Aggression, Maltreatment, and Trauma stated that many perpetrators of interpersonal violence deploy a three-part strategy to confuse and silence their victims. The acronym DARVO stands for Deny, Attack, and Reverse Victim and Offender. Julius displayed this technique many times over the years when reporters attempted to confront him. When pressed further, Julius said his accusers were lying out of hatred. He wouldn't respond to these questions because he wouldn't allow himself to be mocked by viewers. Julius stood and declared the interview over. The cameras followed him down the hall as he attempted to flee, saying, I don't want to be on your cameras. Get that camera off of me or I'll break it with power. The cameras captured Julius in an undignified and distinctly ungodlike position. He held his jacket in front of his face as if it would make him invisible. Paul followed suit, though no one was talking to him. With jackets held over their heads like children hiding beneath their covers, Julius and Paul Sweetman hurried into their car and sped away. Paul probably felt relieved the interview had ended before they got to his past financial scandals. Unfortunately for Paul, he couldn't avoid his current troubles. The residential building boom that had made the work's countywide construction so successful slowed dramatically in the early 1990s. A cutback to new construction caused serious cash flow issues for the company, resulting in dramatic layoffs. The majority of Countrywide's employees were members of the work who had never benefited from the company's success. By 1993, over a decade in business, Paul Sweetman dissolved countywide construction. After not receiving their severance or pensions, former employees had complained to the U.S. Department of Labor. They launched an investigation and found that Paul owed $1.8 million, an amount that Paul agreed to pay back by January 1994. Allegedly, he had loaned money from Countrywide's pension and profit-sharing program to himself and his other businesses. 
In addition to agreeing to pay $1.8 million in restitution to his employees, Paul waived his right to his shares of the company. Paul cited various assets he would use to pay back what he'd stolen, but at least one of those assets was a condo development that Paul hadn't paid the mortgage on in two years, meaning it likely wouldn't produce the $1.3 million he claimed it would. Paul ran on borrowed time. The business troubles were no doubt exacerbated by the group's shrinking numbers. In 1993, Julius had a meager 50 followers remaining, with hardly anyone left to work on top of market troubles. All but one of their real estate offices shuttered its doors. The Department of Labor put Paul on a strict repayment plan for the $1.8 million he owed his former employees. The initial $10,000 payment came in time, but the next date came and went. Despite this, the department didn't take further action against Paul, as they felt he was making a good-faith effort to raise the money. The Labor Department may have been fooled, but those who had worked for Paul and Joanne knew they had little to no hope of ever actually seeing any of their money. While Paul's misdeeds took the public focus, Julius laid low after his disastrous TV interview in 1993. To the surprise and relief of many in the surrounding Connecticut communities of Meriden, Southington, and New Britain, the next piece published about him was an obituary. In July of 1996, Julius Schacht now died at the age of 71. The cause of death wasn't disclosed to the public, but reports said he died in his sleep of old age. The news shocked former members like Lisa Oliver, She'd only been out for three years and knew he'd die eventually, but the idea that a man who'd claimed ultimate power over the universe met his end so quietly felt strangely disappointing. It was an anticlimactic end to a three-decade-long reign of terror. After Julius's death, Paul and Joanne Sweetman took over what was left of the work. They inherited less than 100 followers and bitterly embattled businesses. While Joanne maintained her role as embodiment of the Holy Spirit, Paul graduated from chief apostle to a more authoritative position as God's prophet. His leadership proved short-lived, however. In 1999, the shady real estate dealings caught up with Paul. A new indictment alleged that Paul had used that large sum to secure even larger loans from American National Bank. Caught in the snare, Paul put up little resistance. Altogether, he pled guilty to defrauding American National Bank to the tune of $3.2 million. The judge ordered Paul to pay $1.5 million in restitution. This time, authorities sentenced Paul to three years in federal prison. While Paul sat in lockup, Joanne Sweetman enjoyed free reign over the small group of followers she had left. Former members reported that Joanne performed her own special work with the men of the group. But since Julius's death, outside interest in the group's activities had dropped. As a result, not much is known about Joanne's time in charge. In 2004, Paul Sweetman was released from federal prison. Not long after, Joanne told members that Paul had received a vision from Julius to travel the world and preach his message. Despite what she told her followers, Joanne reported Paul missing to Southington Police a short time later on July 24, 2004. After a short investigation, police only found Paul Sweetman's car. He'd vanished without a trace. 
With no further leads, the case went cold. For the next seven years, Joanne continued to run the group unopposed and out of the spotlight, until she died in April 2011. Then in 2016, a 70-year-old former member of the work named Rudy Hannon told police that Paul Sweetman had been murdered. While in custody in Nevada for a parole violation, Hannon said he had helped dismember Paul's body and scattered the remains in the areas surrounding the work. Interestingly, Hannon had already told his story to the FBI 10 years before, in 2006, when he cooperated with them on a different case. For whatever reason, the FBI failed to pass the information along to New Britain police, who had been trying to identify a severed leg found on a golf course shortly after Paul's disappearance in 2004. Because the missing person case and the leg were in two separate jurisdictions, the two cases weren't connected. But on Hannon's word, Southington police obtained DNA from Paul's son. The leg matched. Hannon said the man responsible for killing Paul Sweetman was 40-year-old Sorek Minery, a construction worker and member of the work. When police questioned him, Minery pointed the finger back at Hannon, saying he had been the one to kill Paul. According to Minery, Hannon spent months convincing him that Paul was hurting Joanne. Police arrested Minery following the questioning. Raised in the work, Minery had spent his whole life being told to protect Joanne Sweetman, the Holy Spirit, at all costs. Being divine, Minery believed she had power over his soul. Having lived in the work his entire life, these beliefs were even more central to Minery than to those who joined as adults. When an adult enters a cult, they often develop a pseudo-personality, some combination of their previous identity with the personality of the cult superimposed on it. Psychoanalyst Lorna Goldberg writes that children who were raised in cults from birth or pre-adolescence lack a cohesive personality before entering the cult experience. As a result, the cult personality becomes their original personality, some children may adapt to their situation by becoming extremely submissive, with impoverished senses of identity, poor self-esteem, and fear of the outside world. People like Minery are therefore highly suggestible, especially by those higher up in the cult. Even though Paul was now God's prophet, Joanne held a higher position as part of the Holy Trinity. It's not a stretch to think Joanne sent Hannon on her behalf to convince Minery that God wanted Paul dead. Though neither man admitted to delivering the killing blow, the details of their stories of Paul's final hours matched up. Somehow Paul had been led or taken to Minery's workshop. There, one of them bludgeoned him until he lost consciousness. Hannon and Minery then worked together to load Paul into a freezer. Hannon suspected he was still alive. Minery allegedly placed boxes and tools on top to prevent Paul's escape. Three or four days later, Minery went back to the workshop and used an electric saw to segment the body. Minery disposed of Paul's legs and head in a wooded area in New Britain. He buried the arms and torso in his backyard, where he later poured concrete and erected a shed. After Hannon's confession and Minery's arrest, police began investigating the places the pair had allegedly left Paul's remains. Along with the bones under the shed, 
police discovered two gold rings. One was engraved with Joanne's name. Police and former members of the work believed Joanne Sweetman was likely the mastermind behind the gruesome killing. She may have gotten a taste of having all the power and liked it too much to go back to playing second fiddle once Paul came home from prison. However, since she'd been dead for years, that line of questioning ended there with nothing more than speculation. In November of 2019, the Hartford Courant reported that Sorg Minery pled no contest to conspiracy to commit the murder of Paul Sweetman, though he intended to cooperate with the prosecution against Rudy Hannon. Minery faced a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. Hannon's trial was still set to be scheduled at the time. He pled not guilty to the charges of murder and felony murder. To our knowledge, nothing more has been published about the case. As of 2019, the work still exists. Lisa Oliver's mother and brother are still among the small group of devoted faithful. Not much is known about those that remain, or what keeps them together. It's possible that they believe their god, Julius, has only temporarily returned to heaven to soon come back to Earth once again. However, one thing is clear. Even though Julius, Paul, and Joanne are all gone, their influence lingers over the lives of the people they tortured and abused. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Cults was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Amber Hurley, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast. If you enjoy our in-depth profiles on historical figures and famous fates, you'll love my new limited series, Obituaries. Every Wednesday on Spotify, join me and my co-host Carter as we explore the unlikely bonds forged between two meaningful figures from the past and discover how those relationships impacted the future. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Obituaries. Listen weekly, free and only on Spotify.